Please open your Bibles to James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 1012. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Mr. Jeremy Fuller will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Please keep your Bibles open to James chapter 2. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would meet us here in your word, that you would send your spirit to empower your word in our hearts, bend heaven and earth, Lord God, so that we would have fellowship with you right now and empower your word again. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, today we arrive at probably one of the most challenging passage in the book of James. Well, why is this? Well, first off, because James makes the statement, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And this is a startling statement to some. I remember the first time I heard this, and I was taken quite aback. Isn't justification by faith alone? 
Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 3? And this is what he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is this one of those supposed contradictions in the Bible? Well, this seeming problem brought Martin Luther to the conclusion that James was an epistle of straw. But the truth of the matter is this. There's no contradiction here. James and Paul were not talking about the same thing. Paul was addressing how someone entered the kingdom of God, how someone is declared righteous before God, and, and this is done by faith in the works and uh, the person of Jesus Christ, not by the observance of the law. For you see, he says, Abraham would believe God before he was circumcised, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, who is the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, in contrast to this, James is talking about how one's faith is shown to be genuine faith. And he says that the mark of genuine faith is works, and not just a declaration of faith alone. Do you understand the difference? Paul is saying in Romans that forgiveness of sins is by genuine belief and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And James wants to make sure we know what such a faith actually looks like. Because someone can say that they believe, but the substance of true belief is how they live their life. Of course, I would also like to suggest to you that there's another reason why this is a hard passage for many. And this isn't a new reason or a modern-day concept. It's one as old as the church and has had many names. Antinomianism, presumptions, easy believism, cheap grace. This is the idea that once a person walks that aisle or prays that prayer or asks Jesus into their heart, that they can go on living however they want. And that it doesn't matter how they live from now on because they've been saved. And while it's true that many people may not say this with so many words, there are many times that we live this out in our actions. Now, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called such a notion, the idea that you can make a claim of faith and go on living your life however you want, he called that cheap grace. And he said it was the enemy of the church. Listen to these words from his book, uh, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Basically, you see, cheap grace is eating your cake and having it too. It's seeking to walk with, uh, both si- on both sides of the fence, to have security for when you die or for when things get tough, but freedom to live however you want now. It's to want all of the benefits of salvation, but without the God who gives it. Oh yes, Jesus says, Jesus calls sinners to come to him, him as they are. He says the sick are in need of a physician, not the healthy. But once he forgives them, once he gives them healing, he says go and sin no more. Come and follow me. 
You see, Christ, he went to the cross not to give us a get out of free, get out of hell free card so that we can enjoy our sin even more. But he went to the cross to make people his disciples, people who follow him. So faith and grace without discipleship, without following after Christ, this is unbiblical. This is another gospel. For sin is our enemy, and it is detestable to God. Why, oh why would we? he save us just so we can go back to that from which he saved us? And now this is biblical grace. Paul says this in Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his good own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now, we talked about being zealous for good in Sunday school. What is a zealous? What is a zealot? It is someone who has a fixed mind on one thing, and that controls all their actions. And God has saved us to be zealots for good, zealots for his glory. And so, says James, what does it say about a person if they claim to have faith, but the above, what I just said, is not true of them? Is that faith, true faith? And this question is not something which is unique to this letter. James is only proclaiming what the Lord has delivered to him. Well, where else has Jesus said this, you may ask? Consider John fourteen fifteen: If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or Matthew 12, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fr- fruit bad. For a, fruit, a tree is known by its fruit. Basically, you can tell what a tree is by what it produces. Pastor West uh, preached on this last week. And previously, I asked a question, if you have a tree in your garden and you have a feeling it's an orange tree, how do you know it's an orange tree? If it produces crab apples? If it produces bananas? No, you tell it's an orange tree by its fruit. In the same way, you tell genuine faith by the fruit that it bears. And what is the fruit of faith? The fruit of faith, according to James, is obedience, what he calls works. And our passage, it opens today with the question, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save them? James doesn't answer this question outright, but the implied answer is no. James will call this a dead faith, something without life, something that produces nothing, a life like a lifeless tree. And this isn't faith that has died, but counterfeit faith, faith that has never had life in it to begin with, like an ornamental tree. Could you, would you get fruit off of that? It's made out of plastic. It is not a real living tree, it just looks like one. And if someone were to look at this tree and try and get fruit off of it, what would we think of them? Well, we'd be a little concerned. So why would we be content with a faith that is words only, but has no real substance? 
So what is the mark of true living, saving faith? I would like to present you with a few identifying marks taken from our text. And the first one, you can probably guess at it right now, uh, the true faith is more than words spoken. Earlier, I mentioned a concept called easy believism. In a nutshell, easy believism is the idea that salvation is obtained simply by saying a particular prayer or responding to an altar call or signing a card. It forgets the formula which Christ used, repent and believe the gospel and come follow me. It is more interested in numbers for the sake of boasting rather than desiring to see people genuinely become disciples of Christ. And unfortunately, it is a movement that has affected much of an American evangelism. In contrast to this, James says here that if someone claims to have faith, but that faith has no bearing in their life, is that a genuine faith? Well, let's consider. If somebody tells you that they love you, over and over again, they say, I love you, I love you. Will that be enough for, to prove you of their love? What if in saying this, they never did anything for you to show their love? They never cared for your needs. What if you were starving and hungry and asked them for food and clothing and they said, I love you. I want you to be filled and warm. But they never gave anything to you. Would you consider their love to be genuine? No. No, no, of course not. But why then do we act as if God were so easy to fool? Why, if we are not taken in by such duplicities ourselves? And the example I gave is exactly what James says in verses 15 to 17. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? You said some fancy, nice words there. You told them you hope them that they get filled and, and are clothed, but can they eat your words? Can they wear them on your, their back? The answer, of course, is no. You see, if someone doesn't back up their words, I love you with actions, then even we grow a little suspect. How much more should we be concerned with ourselves or others who say, I am a Christian? yet lives like an atheist, lives as if God did not exist, or if he didn't command them to be holy, someone who doesn't love holiness. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, asks a question. He says, if you do not love holiness, if you do not desire it now, what makes you think you will enjoy heaven? Now, some might say that the quintessential fruit of genuine faith is a theological pedigree. And this is especially true in Reformed circles. We think that a person is a mature believer by how much theological knowledge they have. But is having intellectual knowledge about God and about the Bible, is knowing your systematic theology and the apex of spiritual health, James would say that it isn't. And this is another aspect of genuine faith. True faith is more than just knowledge. I once uh, listened to a lecture by John Frame on apologetics. It was from one of his classes at RTS. 
And he began the very first class by warning his students. He said, don't treat this like an academic pursuit. Don't be worried about getting an A. Because, you know, if Satan took my class, he would get an A. Well, why is that? Well, Satan knows his Bible. Satan knows who God is. And Satan hates God for it. He shudders, as James says in his text, and he wants to see him cast down forever. So James says, oh, you believe in God? You know that he exists, that he is God alone, do you? Well, if that was enough to count as faith, then even the demons would be faithful creatures, wouldn't they? Either that or a theological knowledge would qualify you to be a demon. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying theology is bad. Theology is very good. It is important to know what you believe and why you believe it. So read Calvin. Read Bavinkt. But if your knowledge of Christ stops here and never penetrates here, what good is it? For you see, as I said, the demons know who God is, and what is their response? They shudder. They're revolted. Their knowledge of God brings them dread. They despise him. They want him cast down forever. So you see, faith is more than knowledge. It is knowledge and trust. It is knowledge and love. It is knowledge and devotion. It is knowledge and obedience. Again, imagine if your spouse showed no love for you, no devotion, no trust, but they said, well, at least I'm wearing this ring, aren't I? At least I have this constant reminder of your existence. Would that be genuine love for them? What would you think of that? And that brings me to the next point. True faith submits to God. It doesn't just acknowledge that he has said something somewhere and goes about its business. True faith submits to God. We see this in the example of Abraham. God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, and Abraham obeyed him. He didn't just say, oh yeah, I believe in God, and go about his business. He didn't say, well, God doesn't mean a literal sacrifice. Abraham said, here I am, Lord, And he was willing to give up the apple of his eye to God. Because he knew that God is good. And that God is faithful to his promise. And that God loves him. And that as the author of Hebrews says, God could raise even Abraham's son from the dead. And it is at this point that James says, you see? Abraham's work, Abraham's obedience obedience to God showed his faith was genuine. His faith produced works. It bore the fruit of genuine belief and trust and love and devotion to God. And because Abraham expressed his action by his actions that he was devoted to God in this way, Scripture calls him the friend of God. Now, what does it mean that Abraham was God's friend? The Greek word that James uses is philos, which means one who is amiably disposed or friendly towards. And if you look back in Genesis, the Hebrew word used is ahavka, which literally means loved one. So to be called God's friend means that they were not enemies, but that they were benevolently disposed towards each other. They loved each other. God was benevolently disposed towards Abraham, 
and Abraham towards God. And this is in contrast with what James says in chapter 4, that to know, he says the following, he says, do you, know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if Abraham had said that he believed in God, but had refused to give up his son, would he have been expressing genuine faith? No, on the contrary, it would have shown that there was something which Abraham loved more than God. And that is because true faith involves the love of God. Again, this is because genuine faith is more than just a word spoken, a prayer made, a card signed. As I said in the beginning, it is a heart changed. It is a will renewed. It is a love kindled. So if we claim to have faith, but do not live in obedience, not only are we fooling ourselves, but we have no reason to believe for any moment that the love of God is in us. So the question today is, Christian, what are you willing to turn aside from, to renounce, to go without, to cast away for the greater treasure which you were offered in Christ Jesus? Whose friendship would you rather have? Would you rather that your friend be the eternal, sovereign, holy, loving one who offers a free gift of salvation in Christ? Or would you rather have the friendship that is fickle and demanding and uncaring and graceless, which the world gives, which is passing away in fire and judgment? Because the truth of the matter is, you cannot have both. To try and seek to have both is to be that double-minded man whom James spoke of in chapter 1. And as James says, such a person cannot expect to receive anything from God. Now there is one aspect of true faith that I dare not skip over. It is an important one, for the truth of the matter is you and I fail at many points on this way. James actually uh, acknowledges this later on in his letter. So what does genuine faith look like when we stumble? What does genuine faith look like when we are confronted with the reality of our sin? And this is the truth, that genuine faith involves repentance. So where do we see that in our text today? I would like to draw it out from the story of Rahab, the prostitute. We find the story in the book of Joshua, The city of Jericho is not being, they they were refusing to let God's people pass. They were uh, hostile to the Israelites as they traveled to the promised land. And in the midst of this hostility, some Israelites went in to spy out the city, and they met a woman who recognized who they were. But she also recognized who God was. She recognized that he was indeed coming in judgment, that he is a God of heaven and earth. And perhaps even she recognized that she herself, being a pagan Canaanite prostitute, was deserving of judgment. And recognizing this, she sought God's grace. She sought repentance. So instead of resisting God like the rest of her people, she submitted to him. She sought to help his people out. And our text says that her actions in hiding the spies from, uh, of Israel from the, from the uh, people of Jer- Jericho was an act of genuine faith. 
So have you ever considered faith, uh, repentance, a faith, a, a fruit of faith? Have you ever thought of conviction of sin as a testing point for your faith? Now the world, the world wants you to think that, that guilt is unhealthy, that conviction is a bad thing, and that what you need is to feel good about yourself. But this is a lie. Conviction and guilt, that's painful. I don't want to feel that. But is pain bad? Is pain a bad thing? There are certain diseases that exist where people don't feel pain. And very few of these people, if you were to ask them, usually say, oh, I'm so glad I don't feel pain. Why is that? Because they'll look down on their foot and be like, why am I bleeding? Or they'll put their hand on a burner. They have a burnt hand. So pain tells you, hey, that's dangerous. Injury, stop doing that. In the same way, we may not like to feel guilt or conviction, but that is a gift of God. That is a grace of His Holy Spirit poured out on His people to recognize that your sin is dangerous, that it is a front to God. What a blessing. The opposite is blindness. The opposite of, is hardness of heart. The opposite is, be, is to be cold and dead to God. Do you want that? No. So what will you do when you're confronted by your guilt? Will you tell yourself, oh, it's not that bad after all, or at least I haven't done anything worse, or the Bible doesn't say that I can't do this, or that's an outdated rule, or, well, hell is just a myth created to control people, or I don't believe in a God that will send me to hell. Those are all denials. Those are all trying to rationalize and justify our sin. Yet God's word says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see, for the conviction of sin, though it is painful, is a grace of God that is meant to drive us to the cross and to genuine and true repentance. Repentance. Is that something in your life? A recognition of your utter guilt before the holy and just God who hates sin? A genuine revulsion for your sin and turning from it to God in order to find forgiveness and grace to live obediently? Now, I am far more worried by someone who claims to be a Christian and says, What sin? What conviction? What repentance? I'm far more worried about them than a person who weeps and mourns over their sin and cries out to God forgiveness on a daily basis, even as they constantly wrestle with their sin, because at least they recognize their sin. And we have no reason to fear knowing our sins because we have God's promise of constant and overflowing and abundant forgiveness. Now, I love Jesus' teaching to Peter on the subject of forgiveness. And this is what Jesus says. Peter comes up to him and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You see, Peter was trying to sound pretty good there. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Basically, be willing to forgive your brother no matter how many times he comes to you 
for forgiveness sincerely in one day. See, if Christ commands this, if he commands us to be this way, how can we doubt that he would be this way himself? To you and to me, Christ offers abundant and never-ending forgiveness to those who repent and come to him in faith. So it is better, it is better by far to repent of your sins and seek forgiveness than pretend, than to pretend that they don't exist at all. So those are the markers of faith from the book of James. Do you see what faith is like? It's not something that we can pick up and put on a shelf and look at every now and then as it gathers dust. It's something that has to be active and alive and living. And this is James's conclusion. A body, like a body which lacks its soul, is dead. It doesn't walk. It doesn't talk. It doesn't have a heartbeat. It doesn't have brain activity. It doesn't have any activity. It's dead. In the same way, when a faith is just sitting there, when it's moldering, when it's gathering dust on a shelf, when it's only just looked at every now and then, but it doesn't live in your life, it doesn't affect the way you act, it doesn't affect your heart, then this is a dead faith. So, if you are listening today and have made a profession of faith, or call yourself a Christian, is your faith active? Do you truly live a life for God? Or do you still live as if he didn't exist and maybe only call on him when you need him? Do these words strike at your heart? I know they strike at mine. So what do we do? How do we bear fruit? How do we do the works of God? Can we do this on our own? Is it a matter of our strength and effort, willing, clenching our tooth and saying, oh, I'm going to do better tomorrow? Or do we run to Christ? That, that is the answer of how we bear fruit. We run to Christ. Jesus once said to his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to seek him daily, hourly, minute by minute, to live in a constant awareness of our dependency on him. It means to make use of the means of grace which he has given us. Prayer, the ministry of his word, fellowship, worship, all which are empowered by his spirit in our lives. Are you trying to live your life without these things? Then it's no wonder if you're not bearing any fruit. Now imagine if you had a, broke a branch off of an apple tree and waited for it to grow apples. What would happen? Nothing. The branch would wither and die, and you'd never get any apples off of it. So why do we expect that we will be able to bear fruit when we are keeping ourselves from Christ? I hate to break it to you, none of us is the source and font of life. Christ alone is the source and font of all spiritual life. So we need, if do we, you need to grow in grace? Do you need to bear fruit? Do you long to bear the kind of fruit that James is talking about here? The kind of fruit that will delight and please God? 
then abide in Christ. Seek him out. God will give you his spirit. He will pour it out on you abundantly. He has promised this. This is a prayer which you can be assured of a yes answer to. But this doesn't mean that we can just pray and sit back and wait to watch it happen. He wants us to work, to work at it. He wants us to, uh, to, seek, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For as Paul says, it is God who works into you, in you to do and to will according to his good pleasure. And then when we bear fruit, this, this, is the, this obedience is the blessing of the Christian life. Have you ever thought of obedience as the, the real blessing of Christian life? This is what the psalmist says. He says in Psalm 119, This blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts. You see, the psalmist isn't keeping God's word in order to get something else. To him, that is the greatest blessing that he can receive, far more than the blessing of money, gold or silver, cars, family, opulence, health, to, keep, to be obedient, to, have, to draw near to God, to bear the fruits of true, of true faith, to have something of eternal value. And to have assurance. The blessing of assurance. How do we know that our faith is genuine? When it produces fruit in our life. As, James, as John says in his first epistle, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. By God's grace and the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ, may we all in newness of life bear the blessed fruit of genuine faith to God's pleasure and glory and our lasting joy. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we desire to bear these fruits to your joy and your glory. Help us, we pray. Help us to abide in Christ always so that we may be attached to the source and the font of spiritual life and health, Father. Help us to be obedient to you, Lord, not so that we can earn our salvation, but because you have loved us so much and sent your Son to die for us and that you will be glorified. Christ will be exalted. Your church will be filled with joy and assurance. We pray this all in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.